for three days. They have know this kind of question. Mommy, when daddy back, we want to talk to daddy. We want his voice. Welcome to the Global Inquirer. I'm your host, Nick Mortensen. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that takes a look at case studies to explore how global trends are affecting real lives. Today, I'm sitting down with researcher Derek Wong to discuss the disappearances of several high-profile figures in China, why they happened, and why this case seems to have flown under the radar. So Derek, can you talk about these disappearances? Yeah, I can. So imagine if one of the biggest actresses in Hollywood just disappeared overnight and you didn't hear from them for three months. Or one of the heads of one of the biggest international organizations in the world suddenly disappeared and not even his wife knew where he was. That's kind of what's happened here. There's a big up-and-coming actress in China whose name is Fan Bingbing, and she's not only starred in a lot of Chinese films, but is starting to break into the Western film industry as well. But about three months ago, she kind of dropped off the face of the earth, and nobody heard from her either in person or on social media for about three months. So people were really confused as to where she went. And about a month ago, the president of Interpol, a man named Meng Hongwei, suddenly disappeared as well from France. And nobody heard from him for quite some time before Interpol ended up replacing him with a new acting president as well. Gotcha. And in all these cases, what exactly happened? With Fan Bingbing, she recently reappeared apologizing for tax evasion. In the U.S., this would have been like Julia Roberts or Jennifer Lawrence suddenly vanishing from public view. But after months of speculation, China's most famous actress has finally reappeared with facing millions of dollars in tax fines. In her first social media post in nearly four months, Fan apologized to the public, writing, I feel shamed and guilty for what I have done, adding she would, quote, try my best to overcome all difficulties and raise funds to pay back taxes and fines. And so apparently what had happened was the Chinese government has accused her of essentially understating her income in the film and entertainment industry. So she came back out maybe a week or so ago with a statement apologizing for the tax evasion that she had committed and even wrote in her statement, without the favorable policies of the Communist Party and state, without the love of the people, there would have been no Fan Bingbing. So in this case, we have an actress who was accused of tax evasion and then suddenly disappeared before coming back onto the scene and making this very pro forma state official party line kind of apology to all of her fans and all of her followers. In the case of the Interpol president? One day he sent this really mysterious text to his wife that was just a knife emoji and the words, wait for my phone call. Then no one ever heard from him again, essentially. And so eventually Interpol released a statement saying that he had resigned and he'd been replaced. And the Chinese government released a statement that he was being investigated for unspecified crimes. So the thought is that he's probably been caught up in some kind of anti-corruption probe, but nobody actually knows for sure. And in interviews with his wife, not even his wife knows if he's alive or not. So there's really this air of mystery as to what happened to this man and where is he now? So you see the Chinese government here going after these people for various crimes. You know, in terms of the Interpol leader, we don't know what he did. But in the case of Fan Bingbing, we know it's because of tax evasion or other sort of financial corruption crimes. Why is the Chinese government making people disappear for what is essentially enforcing justice? Wouldn't it be better optics for everybody if, you know, these arrests were public, their trials were public, yeah. and their fates were public? Yeah, so this is part of this 
huge ongoing anti-corruption drive that's happening in China right now. With the new president Xi Jinping who came into power about a decade ago, one of his primary policy drives has been to root out corruption on every level of government. And so we have this really, really aggressive anti-corruption drive in China. The president calls it killing tigers and swatting flies. So killing tigers, top-level corruption and swatting flies. Even the lowest government-level officials um, are being taken down by anti-corruption probes. So I think the Chinese government, in a lot of ways, is trying to really aggressively tackle this issue because corruption has been a real major issue for the Chinese government in years past. Can you speak more to the corruption issue? So in the early 2000s, during China's really explosive growth period, there was enormous corruption among local and provincial and at the central government level. Corruption was a really big part of government because it was so easy to sort of skim money off. It was easy to accept bribes and kickbacks for developing economies in different areas of the country. So you really had this culture of corruption. And so with Xi Jinping becoming president, that all changed. He really, really aggressively pursued corruption, not only to appease the people and sort of make the citizenry more happy about there being a less corrupt government, but also in a lot of ways consolidating his power and taking down a lot of potential rivals in that process of clamping down on government corruption. But the question still remains that if these arrests were made to further this policy, which appears to be quite popular, and it was common sense, would be quite popular, why make people disappear? Why release cryptic and strange statements if these people are caught up in these schemes and are high-profile people, wouldn't there be more political utility for the Chinese government to make their arrests and trials public? Yeah. Is there another motivation here? So I think that the Chinese government historically has had not a lot of transparency around its judicial process. And a large part of that is maintaining control over the narrative. So we don't really know what goes on in these cases. We don't really know what happens to these people. We don't know what happened to Fan Bingbing in the three months where we didn't hear from her. We don't know where Meng Hongwei is even right now. So this lack of transparency and this lack of visibility allows China to kind of control the narrative as to what these people did and why they were wrong and what what is going to happen to them. So I think there's this really this element of government control, even with this ostensibly good goal of taking down corruption and tax evasion. But why do they want to control the narrative? It seems like the narrative would be naturally a good thing. Is the Chinese government trying to further another goal by controlling that narrative? If you look at how power at the central government level has consolidated in China within the past decade, there's been a massive centralization of power, all sort of going towards Xi Jinping, who is the president. One of the major figures that the anti-corruption probe caught up back in the early days of the probe were these two really high-profile Communist Party leaders. One of them was named Bo Xilai, and the other one was Zhou Yongkang. These two high-level Communist Party officials were relatively popular, they were considered potential political rivals, and they also had, within their portfolio of power, a lot of the state security apparatus, a lot of the military apparatus of China. And now with those figures out of the way, Xi Jinping sort of consolidated that area of government under his control as well. So you can see that by taking out potential either political rivals, potential dissidents, people who aren't towing the party line well enough, Xi Jinping is able to kind of consolidate social control in a way that he wouldn't be able to do if he sort of allowed those people to go through that sort of normal judicial process. He sort of clamps down on them really hard and it kind of creates this warning signal to other people as well. 
are these charges trumped up? I mean, you mentioned that there is a very large degree of power consolidation that is a byproduct of this. So could this not easily be described as a Chinese conspiracy to remove various distance with trumped up or completely false claims? Go after distance, go after popular cultural figures, make sure they're on your side and just sell it as an anti-corruption probe or an anti-corruption effort. The thing is, with that lack of transparency, we really have no way of knowing if it is a trumped up charge or not, or if it's a made up charge or not. In a lot of cases, you could reasonably accuse a lot of people in China of corruption just with the way that corruption was part of the political culture in the earlier 2000s. There are probably plenty of politicians who could be implicated reasonably in corruption schemes or bribes or kickbacks or whatever it might be. But part of the problem is with this new anti-corruption probe, since it is directed by the highest levels of government, you can kind of pick and choose who gets prosecuted and who doesn't get prosecuted. You can kind of pick and choose what kind of people are going to go down and what kind of people you might give them the benefit of the doubt or cut them some slack. And so you can see that a lot of political rivals and a lot of major centers of political power in the central government have gone down, but Xi Jinping and his sort of inner circle has generally remained untouched. So you do have this level of government control that's happening because there's that kind of discretion that the government has over who's, who kind of gets the heavy hammer of justice and who gets to walk free. I guess the next question is that you mentioned that the initiative was phrased in terms of killing tigers and swatting flies. The flies being lower level officials, how has this initiative influenced their behavior? Are people being more careful? Has this changed anything? Yeah, so there's been a huge shift in political culture now where there are enormous levels of restriction and regulation on what government officials can do in public. And even in their private lives, there are enormous restrictions. So for example, the kind of phone you can have, the kind of car you can drive, the kind of foods that you can eat and who you can eat with. Government officials back in the early 2000s basically lived like celebrities. They lived like really, really wealthy politicians and they had all their all this money, all the assets. Nowadays, you know, government officials aren't going to be using iPhones. They're going to use Chinese-made phones. They're not going to be driving BMWs or Mercedes-Benzes. They're going to be driving Chinese-made cars. So nowadays, there are regulations on how often you can use your private driver, whether or not you get a secretary, how big your office is, how many trips you can take in a year, who you can have a banquet with or who you cannot have a banquet with. There's this whole culture now of extreme restrictions on the kinds of things that you can do as a communist official, whereas that did not exist in the early 2000s. And can you speak more to banquets? Why does it matter who and who I can and cannot have a group dinner with? So banquets are kind of this integral part of Chinese culture, especially for government officials, in which they kind of serve as a way for people to get connected. And that is often where bribery might take place or kickbacks or favor exchanging might take place in the kind of informal setting of a banquet. And so in that informal setting of a banquet, there's also a lot of extravagance often. There's luxurious spending on really expensive and fancy foods in order to impress other officials or impress businessmen who are visiting things like shark fin soup and other things that you might have heard of. So by cutting down on banqueting, they're not only trying to cut down on corruption that happens between officials, but also on what the party often sees as luxurious, overexpensive, wasteful usage of money. Are these new restrictions on banquets and everything else, are those self-imposed or, or have those new regulations come from above or is it a combination of the two? They are definitely a combination of both. 
there's a cultural sense in which people feel like they have to lie low, that by spending extravagantly, they're going to attract the attention of anti-corruption officials, and they might get taken down. And there's also the legal regulations and restrictions on drivers and phones and expenditures and so on and so forth. If you make major lifestyle changes, like you buy an expensive new car, you move to an expensive new house, all of that's got to get reported now. All of that has to get tracked by the government because they are really, really trying to crack down on even the smallest level of public impropriety with government officials. Well, I guess my question is, why does my phone matter? Sort of, why does it matter to have an iPhone in comparison to some other object? Why does it matter that I'm driving a Mercedes versus some domestic model of car? Is there, is there something tied to it? So there's this sense that continuing to rely on Western products and Western-made luxury items, whether those are phones, cars, handbags, whatever it is, that's kind of seen as being unpatriotic now. And the emphasis is definitely on domestic-made goods, promoting Chinese brands and Chinese-manufactured goods versus these sort of imported Western brands. I think the Chinese government is very, very wary of importing foreign culture in any form. So there are really harsh restrictions on importing foreign luxury goods and also Western entertainment, especially. And we can get into that a little bit more, but the Chinese government is always really wary of trying to bring in foreign cultures into China and how that might influence the populace. So by having public officials only promote Chinese-made goods, that's kind of this nationalistic attitude that's become really prevalent with the rise of Xi Jinping and the rise of this new propaganda effort. Why have these cultural controls been so popular? Like, why does the Chinese government pursue these actions? I think that, again, goes back to this idea of social control or social harmony. The government really wants to promote this brand of a strong China. And if you've heard the kind of tagline that Xi Jinping uses is Chinese dream, the idea that China is now a global superpower after suffering the humiliations of imperialism and the disasters of the Cultural Revolution and the Great Famines and all of that during the 20th century. Now China is back on the world stage as a major player. So this idea of nationalism, national pride, that's being pushed at the highest levels of Chinese government in a lot of ways. And that trickles down to all these different industries, entertainment, luxury goods, phones, cars, whatever it might be, it trickles down to the level of the everyday consumer. And so public officials have to also promote that brand or that image of a strong China now. Um, it's definitely just another part of that kind of agenda, which is aiming to push China as this strong new world player that has its own things to offer. And does it go further than just cultural controls? Are there any other areas where China is flexing its muscles to yeah. exhibit social control? If you look at places like Western China, where there are a lot of ethnic minorities, especially Muslim minorities like the Uyghurs or the Hui, or Tibetans in southwest China, there's an enormous level of government oppression in those regions with respect to those minority groups. So China really cracks down on Islam in the West because they're very afraid of extremism and terrorism coming from those ethnic groups. Um, there was a terrorist attack in Quinming, which is a city in southwest China, a few years ago that involved extremist Uyghur separatist groups. And after that, that was kind of a wake-up call for China to really crack down on terrorism and extremism. But one of the consequences of that is an enormous level of repression for all people identifying in those minority groups. So re-education camps for Muslim men and women in the west of China, basically 
ideological retrainings for all of these people, constant surveillance on the streets, and constant regulations about what you can and can't do in public, how you are and are not able to practice your religion. So there's just this huge level of repression and control over these Muslim minorities in Western China. And the end goal of that, again, is this level of social control to make sure that these Minorities don't get the idea of, oh, we want to have our own country, or oh, we want freedom of religion, we want to be different from the rest of China. The government really wants that same level of social harmony across the country, that nobody's going to be speaking out, there's not going to be any dissidents, everyone's going to toe the party line. So the thing I'm really curious about is that these disappearances haven't really shown up in Western media. And I think we're just now getting around to talking about the oppression of various minorities in China, even though it's been ongoing for months. And my question is that why have these cases fallen under the radar while we're going through an active diplomatic crisis with Saudi Arabia because of the death of Jamal Khashoggi? And yes, like both are rather horrible violations of human rights and violations of common decency too, but why in the case of Saudi Arabia has there been harsh reprisals and discussions of even harsher reprisals still amongst many governments, amongst many business leaders, amongst many sort of public opinion leaders across the world, but in the case of China, there hasn't really been much attention paid to it or many threats being made? Yeah, so that's really interesting. And if so, if you think about how China interacts with the rest of the world versus this case of Saudi Arabia interacting with the rest of the world, I think while there have been a few stories here and there about the president of Interpol, about Fan Bingbing, about re-education camps, generally it hasn't made that much of a splash in Western media. And so if you look at the difference in the way that governments have responded to China's actions versus how they're responding now to Saudi Arabia's actions. I think the key difference comes down to China's economic and political clout in world affairs, generally speaking, because Saudi Arabia, while still being a big player in global politics, does not match China on the level of economic scale and political scale. I think governments are very fearful of antagonizing the Chinese government. Uh, especially when the opportunity cost is so great. You can imagine losing out on trade deals, losing out on foreign investment, losing out on the massive economic gains that China can offer by trading and investing and offering these economic ties by antagonizing China, criticizing its human rights record, or criticizing the lack of due process in these disappearance cases. The risk of that is so great. And China also has this level of plausible deniability Right? China can say, well, we were just pursuing anti-corruption. These were corrupt officials and we just took care of it. It's an internal matter. Or this actress was evading taxes. We took care of it internally. It's not something that the rest of the world has to be concerned about. Or we're clamping down on terrorism. So we have these efforts to re-educate people to prevent extremism. Again, it's an internal matter. They have this level of plausible deniability where they have these ostensibly good causes, but then these really strict, repressive social controls and lack of transparency by which they are implementing these ostensibly good goals. In that way, the response from world governments is tricky because they don't want to risk losing all the things they can get out of a relationship with China. And what basis do they have to critique China? There's so little evidence. There's so little direct evidence of wrongdoing, and there's so much to lose potentially. And I think that's a good point, because in the case of Saudi Arabia, the story regarding the journalists, I think, has changed about two or three times the past couple of days. You know, it started as it didn't happen to now that it was a botched covert operation that apparently the crown prince knew nothing about and didn't approve. And 
you have this very gratuitous, violent, and kind of terrifying death of a well-known dissident. In the case of China, as you said, there's an element of plausible deniability, or at least the ability to kind of put window dressing on it. The disappearances are, you know, to, as you said, prevent corruption and make, you know, the entire government system more just for everyone. And in the case of everything else, yes, the internment of a Muslim minority is very, very difficult to actually justify. But there's just enough that if you're a country that needs Chinese economic support for your own domestic projects, you can look the other way. That's not an uncommon thing throughout diplomatic and world history. And I think that's just something repeating itself here. We're not looking, we're not pushing it so hard because, as you said, the opportunity cost of really pushing the envelope and challenging China is way too high. And it's much easier to just carry on, work on that plausible deniability, and sort of spare yourself the diplomatic and foreign policy headache of challenging China head-on on these internal matters. And even when countries do criticize China, at the end of the day, actually doing something about it is just too far of a step for them to take. It's just not something they're willing to do. You can think back to the case of a man named Liu Xiaobo, who was a Nobel Peace Prize winner who died in China fairly recently, a few years back. Um, China's government would not allow him to leave the country to receive medical treatment as he was dying. And they claim he received the best medical treatment possible while under house arrest in China. But China's government came under enormous international pressure to let him leave and get medical treatment in the West and to let his widow leave afterwards, after he had passed away. And basically, China's government really stonewalled these international requests. And eventually, people just dropped the issue. Because what are they going to do? What can they do? Sanctions against China, like the biggest economy in the world, essentially, the one of the preeminent military powers now in the whole Asia bloc. It's kind of difficult for countries to justify taking that action when the harm to themselves could also be so great. So when an actress disappears for a couple months, when Interpol's president resigns mysteriously, it's so much easier for governments to look the other way because the cost of criticizing or the cost of bringing up these issues is just not worth the, any kind of potential gains that you could get at this stage. In this case, the quest for justice is outweighed by the quest of expedience. So long as China wields the influence it does and stays away from outwardly brutal oppression, it's safe to assume that most countries aren't going to take them on and risk losing out on other interests that are considered more important. This calculation changes when the oppression becomes so gratuitous that it simply cannot be ignored. But so far, China has been able to avoid crossing this line. That's all we have. Thank you for listening to the Global Inquiry, and thank you to Derek Wong for joining us. If you want more Global Inquiry in your life, like us on Facebook and follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And join us next week when I sit down with Emma Ross to discuss Greece's colorful recent economic history. We'll see you next time.